Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. Today, I'm bringing you an internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and advisor, Joe Pine. He's famous for his book, The Experience Economy, competing for customer time, attention, and money, which was twice named one of the top 100 books of all time. You're going to hear about what is the experience economy and how does it impact your business now and going forward. We also discuss success factors like mass customization, another one of his popular books that drives increased customer allegiance and a more profitable bottom line. Without hesitation, I can honestly say that Joe Pine is one of the most brilliant men I've interviewed and has a unique perspective that will elevate your CX knowledge to win in a competitive marketplace. Please subscribe to Doing CX Right on your favorite channel. Tell others and leave me a review. It would mean so much. Now, Let's get on with the show. Hello, Joe Pine. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show. Thanks, Stacey. I appreciate being here with you. Well, you have written some really, I call them famous books, and I want to talk about them. But before we get started, who are you? What do you do for those who maybe don't know you? Well, I am an author. I have books that you talk about, as well as many uh, articles, and then a uh, speaker and a management advisor. So I I go around the world. At least normally I go around the world. It has been nice over the last uh, three months or so to get back on the road, including doing some international travel ma- last month. But uh, I help uh, executives see the world differently and understand what's going on in the world and what therefore they can do about it. Hmm. Why? Why do you spend your livelihood? doing this? Well, uh, there's so, so many, so many reasons why, you know, because, because I have a point of view that has proven to be uh, very effective uh, for companies and be, being able to create more economic value for their customers, which is what we're all about. I, I, uh, I say my purpose in, uh, in business basically is to understand what's going on in the world of business and then develop frameworks that first prescribe what's happening and then describe what companies can uh, do about it. You know, and I also uh, love seeing the light bulbs go on, seeing that uh, that there were people get it and and uh, and seeing what ideas they can generate for themselves and, and again in creating economic value for uh, for their customers and and changing their business as a result. What is a fun fact that people may not know about you, personally or professionally? Um, a fun fact is, uh, I'll say, since you mentioned uh, New Jersey earlier, that, that where you're in, I, I lived in New Jersey as a youth, the first through third grade, and I became a diehard Yankees fan, uh, moved to uh, California, became a diehard Lakers fan, moved from there to Minnesota, hated the move to Minnesota from California. I love California. So I said, I'm not rooting for these stupid Vikings, who's their arch enemy. It was the Green Bay Packers. You know, so because of those moves, I'm a, I'm a uh, Yankees, Lakers, and Packers fan. My uh, business partner Jim Gilmore has more than once accused me of just you know favoring teams that win a lot, but in <laughs> fact, it is because of 
<laughs> of my moved around when I was a kid. That is a fun fact. And I wonder where you will be next. Stay tuned, audience. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into the experience, customer experience, and, and more. So first of all, let's start with what does that mean to you, customer experience? Because I get a lot of different definitions. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say something that you may or may not, not like, Stacey, which is I don't like the term. <laughs> I don't like the term customer experience. Even if it, uh, you know, I don't know, directly came out, but at least heavily influenced by our work on the experience economy that we started in the mid-90s, because what it has come to mean, for the most part, by most people, again, not everyone, but by most people, is let's make our interactions with our customers nice and easy and convenient, right? And you could summarize that with one word. The more current word is frictionless, right? Let's be frictionless. And, and that's why I don't like the term, because those words are all well and good, but all they'll ever get you is great service. They won't get you a great experience. The, the nice, easy, convenient are all, uh, and frictionless are all, all, all service words. What's crucial to understand and the, and the core thesis of our book, The Experience Economy, is that experiences are an economic offering. And, and as di experiences are as distinct from services as services are from goods. So, so when, you, when you do normal CX, when you make things nice, easy, convenient, Again, all it is is a great service. It can be the best service in the world, but nice is nice, but rarely does it rise to the level of memorability. And true distinctive experiences are memorable. It's reaching inside of people, creating that memory within them. When we talk about being easy, uh, often that translates into let's routinize things for our employees to make our transactions easy with our customers. But that gets in the way of understanding uh, the, the inherent uniqueness of every customer and that, that you need to be, because uh, experiences are inherently personal, that they exist inside of us as our reaction to the, to the events that are staged in front of us. So the, the more you customize for that individual, the more you get out of the routine, the more engaging and the memorable it's going to be. And then finally, uh, convenience is the antithesis of what we talk about with experiences because convenience means let's get in and out as quickly as possible. Let's spend as little time with the company as possible. And with true distinctive experiences, it's about people valuing the time they spend with you, that they want to spend more time with you. And that's the key distinction, that, that if you summarize all the distinctions between services and experiences, it's that services are time well saved, nice, easy, convenient, frictionless, experiences are time well spent. Again, mm -hmm. that people value that time. Now, all of these are built on top of other, you know, experiences are built on top of services, which are built on top of goods, which are made out of commodities. So as core to that experience, you need frictionless services, right? That lie underneath it, but they in and of themselves won't give you that memorability again and that time well spent that is the hallmark of, um, of distinctive experiences. So when you originally wrote The Experience Economy to now, reflecting back, how has it changed? Well, the biggest difference, of course, is the rise of digital technology. Mm -hmm. When we first started writing about The Experience Economy in the late, uh, you know, again, mid to late 1990s, you know, we talked about the internet as, as, as something that has two basic effects, that the internet is both commoditizing 
in that uh, it allows you to see everybody's prices and that tends to push you down to the lowest possible prices. It, because anything you can digitize, you can customize though, it allows you to better understand individual customers and better customize to them, which is a great effect. And also you, you know, the surf, you think back to the old surfing metaphor of surfing the web uh, means that people were having experiences. They were going from site to site and exploring things uh, out there. You know, those are the, I guess, three I'll call the main effects of the internet. So we originally didn't really take that into account other than those. And uh, and today, of course, it's such a big, big impact on everybody's lives, the smartphones that we have and so forth. The second big thing is we talked about in, in, in 1999 when the, the original book came out, we talked about the nascent experience economy, the emerging, the forthcoming experience economy. And now when we re-release the book in 2020, we talk about it as it's here, right? Now we're in an experience economy. Experiences have become the predominant economic offering. And, and that's a, a big change uh, as well. You brought up price before, and obviously the digital world allows us to compare. But aren't we also really this movement, the CX movement is that experience economy, it goes way beyond the dollar sign. So people can really compare on the web, but they can't really compare based on what we're talking about, why people buy. It's a piece of it. Well, yes, it's a piece of it, but it tends to be what um, depends on how they view your product and your company. If they view it as a commodity, right? If you've been commoditized, and 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 that's that's the big boogeyman that we put in the book is that what what this shift up this progression of economic value allows you to do is to decommoditize to get to to get create true differentiation among your customers. But if they truly view you as a commodity, all they care about is price right? and convenience, you could say, right? Is that they want it at the cheapest possible price. They want it at the greatest possible convenience. Why? So they can spend their hard-earned money and their hard-earned time on the experiences that they value. So people actually want goods and services to, to be commoditized. Now, if you are not treated as a commodity, then yes, price is only one of the factors. In fact, Price is a measurement of how much value you really create. If you can charge more, charge a premium, so to speak, then then you can. Uh, and then it's an indicator that you're creating more value for people. We uh, uh, we recently wrote an article for uh, Duke Corporate Education's Dialogue Magazine, you know, a major piece in September that came out called "Competing for Customers' Time," and or competing for customer time. And uh, we introduced in there sort of this new formula, right? Because it's where we talk about services as time well saved, experiences as time well spent. There's also time wasted when you waste your customer's time, which companies do all the time, unfortunately. Then that's sort of a negative value. But basically what we say in there is that the value you create and therefore how much money you can charge is based on the functionality that you provide in your offering whether it's commodity, goods, service, or experience, right? Whether you're meeting what they're looking for, satisfying their needs, and so forth, plus the net value of time, which can be negative, can be zero, or can be positive. And mm -hmm. if you if you are wasting your customer's time, for example, uh, like uh, going into a uh, going to a hospital and having them give you a form to fill out of information they already know, right? Calling mm -hmm. up a contact center and have them put you on hold and ask you for your account number when you get uh get yeah. to an actual human being right exactly they they uh, uh ask you for your account number again right you're wasting their time 
then you actually can charge less. It, it detracts from the value that you create. If you provide great CX, you know, the nice, easy, convenient, you get time well saved and that's a zero, then you're actually getting paid for the functionality you provide, right? Not treated as a commodity. But if you provide time well spent, then you can, in fact, charge more money for that, charge a premium for that. And if you're really good at it, you can charge explicitly for the experience. You can charge for the time your customers spend with you be an admission fee or a membership fee of some sort. And there are just scores, hundreds of brands now that are able to do that because they create such a wonderful experience that uh, that people are willing to pay for that experience. Mm. So going back to commodity for a second, my head goes to coffee. I mean, we could get coffee pretty much everywhere now. Little restaurants, big restaurants, 7-Elevens. Starbucks, McDonald's. Okay. <laughs> and you're drinking some. Well, tea. But tea too. Coffee, tea. Isn't it really, again, even with co- commodities, that it's not about price? Because I know I don't like paying triple the price for a cup of coffee, but I choose to go where I go to buy it. So even with a commodity, it is about the experience, even when it, even when coffee's just coffee. Well, it de- again, it depends on how you want to treat it as an individual. And even as an individual, sometimes you may want a commodity coffee. Sometimes you may want a premium coffee. Coffee, but it's a great way to think about the illustration of the progression of economic value at the core of the experience economy, because uh, coffee is a true commodity, right? At least coffee beans are. Right, the cup of coffee you have is made out of coffee beans, uh, and those beans are a true commodity. They have a future price that you can look up every day. Anything with a future price is a true commodity. And if you convert it from a from a uh, per pound to a per cup basis, coffee as a commodity is only worth two, three, four cents per cup. Right, that's what farmers get for is two to four cents per cup of coffee. But if you take those beans and then you grind them, roast them, package them, if you and, and put them on a grocery store shelf somewhere then you can get 5, 10, 15 cents per cup of coffee, right? That you've created more value because you made it more convenient. You've done some of the work, made it easier for me to make that coffee at home. But if you take those packaged beans and you actually perform the service of brewing for a customer in a vending machine, a corner diner, a bodega, a kiosk, or, or a, a you know, Dunkin' Donuts 7-Eleven somewhere, now you get 50 cents, dollar, dollar and a half, maybe two per cup of coffee. But if you surround the brewing of that coffee with the ambiance in the theater of a Starbucks or some other experiential coffee place where part of what you're paying for is the ability to sit down, enjoy, and sip that cup of coffee, and now you're paying three, four, five dollars or more. So there's, often, there's places now where you can spend ten dollars or more for a cup of coffee that still only has two to four cents worth of beans in it. So it does depend on what business the company thinks it in, and it does depend on what you as a consumer want to buy. All right, you can buy the beans. You know, you probably can't get them directly from a farmer, but there may be farmer's markets where you can. You can buy the packaged goods in the supermarket and, and spend uh, you know, a little bit more, or you can buy the commodity cup of coffee in a place like a 7-Eleven a, a somewhere or you know, a Super America gas station and pay the lowest price for that. If all you want is plain old vanilla coffee, you don't care. Right, or you can pay that premium uh, because of the creation of more of an experience in the brewing and the uh, and the and the sipping of that coffee. 
Tell me about mass customization. You write a lot about and talk about that as we're as we're talking about coffee and and, and mass production. Right, right. So, ma- well, so mass customization is actually the title of my first book, and it means they efficiently serving customers uniquely. In other words, giving every customer exactly what they want, but doing it at a price they're willing to pay. And it's it's at the core DNA of this progression of economic value because how I discovered it is I recognized that mass customizing a good automatically turns it into a uh, service. If you think, for example, about uh, Coca-Cola freestyle machines, I don't know if you've seen these in Five Guys and Wendy's and other places, where you they don't mass produce you know a, a cup of Coca-Cola or a can of Coca-Cola and give it to you. You you get to choose your own Coke that you want. That you can from a base of of Coca-Cola, uh, diet Coca-Cola or Coke Zero, you can then add in any additives you want: vanilla, cherry, lime, uh, lemon, whatever it might be. You can mix it with uh, a Fanta orange or Barks root beer or Sprite. Even with you can even mix the caffeine with the with the decaf. You could mix the Coke Zero with the Coke to change the sweetness and level of caffeination. I mean, it's, and it's basically limitless because you put your cup on there, decide what you want, and press the button. And and what I do is like I, I love Coke with lime, so I do Coke with lime, and I press the button. I get up to maybe like eighty percent full. And then I um, stop, I go Coke Zero with lime and uh, continue on to the last 20%. So I get 80% of the sweetness, but not 100% of the regular Coke sweetness. And you can do that anywhere along, along those lines. So so the it's no longer a finished good that you're buying out of the store. It's the service of putting together all the components that is exactly what you want. And then what I realized is that mass customizing a, a service in, this, in the same way automatically turns it into an experience. If you design a service that's so appropriate for this particular person, exactly the service that they need at this moment in time, then you can't help but make them go wow and turn it into a memorable event, turn it into an experience. You know, Ritz-Carlton Hotels, for example, specializes in that by remembering all of their guest preferences, that whenever they express a preference for anything, they um, ask them to, uh, or they, they write it down uh, in, a, in a guest preference pad, that night it gets typed up and put in their database. And so every day they're fulfilling the, pre- the, the preferences of people presciently without them even having to ask right? and creating this little mystique about how they go about doing it. So that's the core DNA of, of the experience economy. And it's why, because again, experiences are inherently personal. Customization helps you uh, get personal with them. And the efficient part of it comes from from basically modularity is the primary technique. If you think about modularity, you think about Lego building blocks. What can you build with Lego, Stacy? Everything. Right, everything. Why? Because you have a large number of modules, different sizes, different shapes, different colors, and a simple, elegant linkage system for snapping them together. Right. That's why modularity enables you to efficiently give everybody exactly what they want. You know, back to the Starbucks example, we talked earlier about how how you're not drinking coffee, you're drinking tea. I'm actually have a I have a Starbucks cup, but this is a chai tea latte, not a not a coffee. I don't drink. I, you know, I, I talk about coffee all the time. I never drink this stuff, <laughs> almost never. And uh, but my standard order when I go into Starbucks is a venti non-fat six pup no water chai extra hot for Joe. And every one of those is how they customize that drink for me. Because again, they've got all the modules sitting there and just what what do we put into your particular drink? 
you know, that now it's a big thing on TikTok to, to, to buy these drinks that are so customized that cost often $10, $15, with all these different things in them and then showing, showing them off, right? There was an article in the Wall Street Journal about that a week or two ago. <laughs> so I'm smiling because literally right before this call, I had uh, picked up a sandwich for my son locally. And I walked in and he and my husband both order from this place, I don't know, every day. (laughs) But I don't go there. I don't go there. So I walk in and I said, hey, I'm here to pick this up for Sherman is the last name. And he gives me the sandwich and someone else in the back kitchen yells out, oh, bring, bring out some extra buffalo sauce. And I, he looks at me and he said, oh, yeah, right. And I said, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, he always wants that on the side. We forgot to give it to him. <laughs> I'm like, oh. And he didn't ask. Like, he must have forgotten because right. one other person right. said, oh, he didn't ask for it. And the other guy's like, no, he likes that every time. So, so that's what you're talking about. It's knowing right. your customer. That's Ritz Carlton, obviously. They're, <laughs> it's not the local sandwich shop, but it's the same thing. It's it's really knowing your customer. That's a big wow. Right, right. And, and in that case, I would say it's not mass customization because, because like they don't have a database. That really is dependent on the particular servers that were there at that moment in time. If you had a different group at the time that your, your husband doesn't normally go, they don't know that, they wouldn't do it. But that's very astute people, very smart people. And that's the way we as individuals in interacting with our customers whether it's in frontline, you know, like that in retail, uh, you know, even as consultants or working with them, we need to be attuned to that and be able to understand each customer, each client that we have and respond to them differently because of who they are uniquely. Yes. You write about the five E's. What, what does that mean? What does that entail? What are some actionable tips? Well, I have, you know, we, we have a 4E model and we have a 5E model, but the 5E model uh, is basically a, a model of dramatic structure that, that one of the things you need to have is you, in any great experience is you need to have drama. It again, uh, that you know, rises up to a climax and comes back down again. It again illustrates the difference between experiences and services. Services are flat. You know, you, you don't want drama. In fact, again, the word frictionless means zero drama. That's what frictionless means, right? There is no drama whatsoever. It's just boom, done. And, uh, but with this experience, you want to create a memory, then you've got to rise up to this climax and come back down again, or your experience is going to be very flat, right? Nothing much, nothing much happens. Your drama is friction. It's a basic thing to understand. Uh, and uh, so the five E's is a way of, 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 of thinking about your interactions with your customers in a way that creates that drama. And, and it, it actually comes from, we got this from a, a wonderful company uh, in Chicago called the Doblin Group, you know, way back when. And, we, you know, we changed some of the words and, and I ing them, I ing'd them to make them more experiential. But it's basically their core model that they've been working with for, for 20 years. And uh, it's um, enticing, entering, engaging, exiting, and extending. Right? Those are the five E's. So enticing is how, this is before the actual experience actually starts. How do you entice people to want to become a part of that experience? How do you draw them in? Obviously, marketing and promotion are ways to do that, but recognize that what you're also doing is you're you're basically acting as the pre-show for the live experience. You're setting up the live experience. And if you prime people 
in what you do with them before they ever get there, before they ever interact with you, you can actually heighten the level of drama that is there. So it's important to think about how you go about doing that. Then entering, what's the first impression? What's the, what's the first thing that's happened that's very important to set the stage for what's going to, to occur over the rest of the experience? Engaging is the meat of the experience, and obviously all five E's have to be engaging total, but this is why people are calm. This is what they're looking for is that primary engagement, the climax of the experience, and then exiting what happens at the end. Uh, you know Daniel Kahneman's famous rule about peak-end rules, put your most money into the peak, the climax of that engaging, and the end, because that's what people remember the most. So what's that last thing that happens that they remember? And then how do you extend that experience through time, right? That's the post-show of the experience that should, should lead to cementing the memories in their head. It should lead to them telling other people about it so they want to come. And it should lead to back right back to enticing to be able to get uh, them to come again and have that, uh, have that next experience with you. So if you design that um, at any level of interaction with customers, then you can create that drama and create a great experience and enter into a relationship with them. Understand, too, that the five E's are a fractal, which is they occur at multiple levels throughout. Through, through it, the, the drama rises up and down over each one of those uh, five levels. And it can encompass a single interaction. It also can encompass a relationship that you have with a, with a customer over time. So can you summarize all that in kindergarten terms? <laughs> so I'll try. I've been a long time since I've been in kindergarten, been a long time since <laughs> my girls have been in kindergarten. I'm looking and forward I get to you. I, I get you, by the way, but I know right. a lot of people are new to CX listening. So I want to make sure yeah. that you got the experts and now you're speaking to the novices here. Right, right. So the basic thing to understand is when you create an experience, don't have a flat one. You want something to happen that engages people, that, that things get more and more exciting and then come back down again. And for a kindergartner, you know, I'd say, you know, look at, look at any birthday party you go to, right? You, you anticipate going to that birthday party you know, your, your parents are putting together that little uh, bag of, of goodies that you may be bringing to share with other people. You're driving there. And the first thing you do when you get to that birthday party is you see the balloons outside and everything. That's the entering part of the experience. And then you get inside and you're engaged with all the games with that climax of the of uh, the birthday cake coming out with all the candles lit on it and the birthday uh, uh, kid gets to blow out those candles, make a wish, and then you got to eat all that cake. Right, then what's the last thing you get? The exiting is the goodie bag that you get to take home of things. And then the extending is sitting in that car on that sugar high and recognize, wow, what a great experience that was. And if your parents are on the ball, they make you write a thank you note for being able to come to the party and have that goodie bag. And you get a thank you note from the birthday kid on what you gave them and you've extended that experience and you can't wait for the next birthday party. Look, you have your next economy book. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we actually we actually have a birthday party experiences core into the in, in the book as well. Something that we always talk about. Oh, I love it! it That's me. great. That's great. Well, final two questions. If I had many CEOs, leaders, entrepreneurs, managers in my room right now, what's the key takeaway? What do you want them to remember? What I want them to ask themselves is, "What business are you really in?" 
is understand what business you are really in. Are you in the commodities business, the goods business, the service businesses, or the experience business? And recognizing that if you are in the in the goods or services business, then recognize how, how commoditized are you? And if you see those forces of commoditization and you want to forestall those forces of commoditization, then you need to rise up and recognize that you're in the experience business with, with I'll even just as a little tickler here at the end, this is part of our exiting experiences. We're coming to the end is recognize experiences are not it. There's actually one more economic offering. And that's where you use experiences as the raw material to guide people to change, to help them achieve their aspiration. And if you're in a business that is anything close to helping people become healthy, wealthy, or wise, then you're in the transformation business. And that's another option for you. That was powerful. All right. Now, final question. If you could go back in time and talk to 20-year-old Joe, (laughs) what do you know now that you might not have known then? What would you tell you? I would would tell my 24-year-old self, you know what? You won't be considered a nerd for the rest of your life. Now, notice I was very careful of my choice of words. I didn't say you won't be a nerd for the rest of your life. I just said you won't always be considered a nerd for the rest of your life. <laughs> Maybe being a nerd is cool now. That's right. They're, well, geeks are more cooler than nerds, but but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And anything professionally you would say? Uh, well, you know, I mean, why I, I wouldn't want to say anything professionally to my former self. You know, if you look at the old time table conundrum, I wouldn't want to tell my old self anything differently. It would cause him to do anything differently to end up to where I wouldn't end up where I am here today with you. It's this has been perfect. Mm. <laughs> mm. So trust the process. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be able to share you with my audience. Where can they find you? I'll add to the show notes your links. Uh, you can find me at strategichorizons.com, Strategic Horizons with an S. Uh, you can learn all about me and our various books there, about uh, our speeches, workshops, our, our um, you know, specific offerings, such as our Experience Economy Expert Certification Course as well as our on-stage frontline video training offering. All of that's on Strategic Horizons. You can also follow me at Twitter, or you can um, uh, feel free to connect with me on, on LinkedIn. Well, I am sure you're going to get wonderful new followers. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Stacey. It's been a, been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacy Sherman, Doing CX Right. <laughs>